Hello, my friend. How are you? I hope you are well. This is Short Stories, a production of AdventuresInAudio.net. I'm Robert Crandall. On this episode, we will hear a creepy story that may cause nightmares. And speaking of nightmares, I had another one recently. In this nightmare, I was in the living room of a house with three other people. Two were seated on a sofa. I was seated in a chair, and another was standing. The person standing was a tall, ominous-looking man. The two that were seated on the sofa were at an angle that I could not see their faces. I was feeling very uneasy when the tall man ordered me to get up and look at them. When I did, I noticed one was someone I knew but hadn't been on speaking terms with for some time. Their faces were wretched and grotesque, of inhuman nature. I was stricken with terror. The tall man said in a menacing voice, I think you should leave, Robert, and pointed to the door. I walked over to the door, which he opened and grabbed my arm and pushed me out the door, saying, Go quickly, Robert. Go quickly. I ran to the street, but could not cross because of heavy traffic. He shouted at the traffic signal and called it by name. The name I cannot remember. The signal seemed to be alive and changed upon his command. I ran across the street and could hear him shouting, Go quickly, Robert, go quickly. I'm running as fast as I can. But now it was dark, pitch darkness. I could see nothing. And then I saw light in the distance and the silhouette of a tall, ominous man with a hat. Frightened, I darted across the street, which was now visible and congested with traffic. I zigzagged between moving cars and reached the other side of the street and could hear the groans of frustration that I had gotten away. I ran down a crossing street. I ran as fast as I could and could hear the menacing voice in my head telling me, Go quickly, Robert. I could feel a presence behind me. The man in the silhouette was gaining on me. Suddenly, I saw lights, like city lights in the distance, and I ran even faster. I reached, I reached the lights, and it was a high school football game. Bands playing, crowds cheering. I could feel a terrible, threatening presence behind me, getting closer 
and the voice shouting, Go quickly, Robert, go quickly. Exhausted, I collapsed and woke up, relieved. Well, you know how that goes. I'm sure you've had your, your own nightmares. Have you had a nightmare lately? I told you some of mine. Now I would like to hear yours and read them on the show. Maybe make it a new feature of the podcast. That would be cool, wouldn't it? So I invite you to send me your nightmares. Send them to uh, Robert, or no, send them to robertcc at gmail.com. That's Robert, R-O-B-E-A-R, C like cat, C like Charlie, at gmail.com. About 500 words would be preferred, but make it whatever amount of words it takes. And be sure to give me express consent for me to read it on the podcast. Without that, I cannot do it. Remember, once it's on the podcast, it's there forever. And for the entire world to hear. We have listeners all over the world. Sounds exciting. So send in your nightmares. The email again is robertcc at gmail.com. Now, for our feature story. Have you ever walked into a friend's house and noticed a human hand chained to the wall? Well, probably not. If so, uh, you might want to consider adjusting your criteria for selecting friends. In this story, that is what happens. A very interesting and creepy story. I hope you enjoy The Hand by Guy de Maupassant. All were crowding around M. Bermitois, the judge, who was giving his opinion about the St. Cloud mystery. For a month, this inexplicable crime had been the talk of Paris. Nobody could make heads or tails of it. M. Bermitois, standing with his back to the fireplace, was talking, citing the evidence, discussing the various theories, but arriving at no conclusion. Some women had risen in order to get nearer to him and were standing with their eyes fastened on the clean-shaven face of the judge, who was saying such weighty things. They were shaking and trembling, moved by fear and curiosity and by the eager and insatiable desire for the horrible, which haunts the soul of every woman. One of them, paler than the others, said during a pause, it's terrible. It verges on the supernatural. The truth will never be known. The judge turned to her, 
true, madam. It is likely the actual facts will never be discovered. As for the word supernatural, which you have just used, it has nothing to do with the matter. We are in the presence of a very cleverly conceived and executed crime, so well enshrouded in mystery that we cannot distangle it from the involved circumstances which surround it. But once I had to take charge of an affair in which the uncanny seemed to play a part. In fact, the case became so confused that it had to be given up. Several women exclaimed at once, Oh, tell us about it! M. Bermitois smiled in a dignified manner, as a judge should, and went on. Don't think, however, that I, for one minute, ascribed to anything in the case to supernatural influences. I believe only in normal causes. But if instead of using the word supernatural to express what we do not understand, we were simply to make use of the word inexplicable, it would be much better. At any rate, in the affair of which I am about to tell you, it is especially the surrounding preliminary circumstances which impressed me. Here are the facts. I was at the time a judge at Ayacho, a little white city on the edge of a bay which is surrounded by high mountains. The majority of the cases which came up before me concerned vendettas. There are some that are superb, dramatic, ferocious, heroic. We find there the most beautiful causes for revenge of which one could dream. Enmities hundreds of years old, quieted for a time but never extinguished. Abominable stratagems, murders becoming massacres, and almost deeds of glory. For two years I heard of nothing but the price of blood of this terrible Corsican prejudice, which compels revenge for insults meted out to the offending person and all his descendants and relatives. I had seen old men, children, cousins murdered. My head was full of these stories. One day I learned that an Englishman had just hired a little villa at the end of the bay for several years. He brought with him a French servant, whom he had engaged on the way to Marseille. Soon this peculiar person, living alone, only going out to hunt and fish, aroused a widespread interest. He never spoke to anyone, never went to town, and every morning, he would practice for an hour or so with his revolver and rifle. Legends were built around him. It was said that he was some high personage, fleeing from his fatherland for political reasons. Then it was affirmed that he was in hiding after having committed some abominable crime. Some particularly horrible circumstances were even mentioned. In my judicial position, I thought it necessary to get some information about this man, but it was impossible to learn anything. He called himself Sir John Rowell. I therefore had to be satisfied with watching him as closely as I could, but I could see nothing suspicious about his actions. However, as rumors about him were growing and becoming more widespread, 
I decided to try to see the stranger myself, and I began to hunt regularly in the neighborhood of his grounds. For a long time I watched without finding an opportunity. At last it came to me in the shape of a partridge which I shot and killed right in front of the Englishman. My dog fetched it for me, but taking the bird I went at once to Sir John Rowell and begging his pardon, asked him to accept it. He was a big man with red hair and beard, very tall, very broad, a kind of calm and polite Hercules. He had nothing of the so-called British stiffness, and in a broad English accent he thanked me warmly for my attention. At the end of the month we had five or six conversations. One night at last, as I was passing before his door, I saw him in the garden, seated astride a chair, smoking his pipe. I bowed, and he invited me to come in and have a glass of beer. I needed no urging. He received me with the most punctilious English courtesy, sang the praises of France and of Corsica, and declared that he was quite in love with this country. Then, with great caution, and under the guise of a vivid interest, I asked him a few questions about his life and his plans. He answered without embarrassment, telling me that he had traveled a great deal in Africa, in the Indies, in America. He added, laughing, I have had many adventures. Then I turned the conversation on hunting, and he gave me the most curious details on hunting the hippopotamus, the tiger, the elephant, and even the gorilla. I said, Are all these animals dangerous? He smiled. Oh, no, man is the worst. And he laughed a good broad laugh, the wholesome laugh of a contented Englishman. I have also been man-hunting. Then he began to talk about weapons, and he invited me to come in and see the different makes of guns. His parlor was draped in black, black silk embroidered in gold. Big yellow flowers, as brilliant as fire, were worked on the dark material. He said, It is Japanese material. But in the middle of the whitest panel, a strange thing attracted my attention. A black object stood out against a square of red velvet. I went up to it. It was a hand, a human hand, not the clean white hand of a skeleton, but a dried black hand with yellow nails the muscles exposed, and traces of old blood on the bones, which were cut off as clean as though it had been chopped off with an axe near the middle of the forearm. Around the wrist, an enormous iron chain, riveted and soldered to this unclean member, fastened it to the wall by a ring strong enough to hold an elephant in leash. I asked, What is that? The Englishman answered quietly, This is my best enemy, comes from America, too. 
the bones were severed by a sword, and the skin cut off with a sharp stone, and dried in the sun for a week. I touched these human remains, which must have belonged to a giant. The uncommonly long fingers were attached by enormous tendons, which still had pieces of skin hanging to them in places. This hand was terrible to see. It made one think of some savage vengeance. I said, This man must have been very strong. The Englishman answered quietly, Yes, but I was stronger than he. I put on this chain to hold him. I thought he was joking. I said, This chain is useless now. The hand won't run away. Sir John Rowell answered seriously, it always wants to go away. This chain is needed. I glanced at him quickly, questioning his face, and I asked myself, Is he an insane man or a practical joker? But his face remained inscrutable, calm and friendly. I turned to other subjects and admired his rifles. However, I noticed that he kept three loaded revolvers in the room as though constantly in fear of some attack. I paid him several calls. Then I did not go any more. People had become used to his presence, and everybody had lost interest in him. A whole year rolled by. One morning, toward the end of November, my servant awoke me and announced that Sir John Rowell had been murdered during the night. Half an hour later, I entered the Englishman's house, together with the police commissioner and the captain of the gendarmes. The servant, bewildered and in despair, was crying before the door. At first, I suspected this man, but he was innocent. The guilty party could never be found. On entering Sir John's parlor, I noticed the body stretched out on its back in the middle of the room. His vest was torn. The sleeve of his jacket had been pulled off. Everything pointed to a violent struggle. The Englishman had been strangled. His face was black, swollen, and frightful, and seemed to express a terrible fear. He held something between his teeth and his neck, pierced by five or six holes, which looked as though they had been made by some iron instrument, was covered in blood. A physician joined us. He examined the finger marks on the neck for a long time and then made this strange announcement. It looks as though he has been strangled by a skeleton. A cold chill seemed to run down my back and I looked over to where I'd formerly seen the terrible hand. It was no longer there. The chain was hanging down, broken. I bent over the dead man, and in his contracted mouth, I found one of the fingers of this vanished hand, cut, or rather, sawed off by the teeth, down to the second knuckle. Then the investigation began. Nothing could be discovered. No door window, or piece of furniture had been forced. The two watchdogs had not been aroused from their sleep. Here in a few words is the testimony of the servant.
For a month, his master had seemed excited. He had received many letters, which he would immediately burn, often in a fit of passion which approached madness. He had taken a switch and struck wildly at this dried hand riveted to the wall, and which had disappeared, no one knows how, at the very hour of the crime. He would go to bed very late and carefully lock himself in. He always kept weapons within reach. Often at night, he would talk loudly as though he were quarreling with someone. That night, somehow, he had made no noise, and it was only on going to open the windows that the servant had found Sir John murdered. He suspected no one. I communicated what I knew of the dead man to the judges and public officials. Throughout the whole island, a minute investigation was carried on. Nothing could be found out. One night, about three months after the crime, I had a terrible nightmare. I seemed to see the horrible hand running over my curtains and walls like an immense scorpion or spider. Three times I awoke. Three times I went to sleep again. Three times I saw the hideous object galloping around my room and moving its fingers like legs. The following day, the hand was brought me, found in the cemetery on the grave of Sir John Rowell, who had been buried there because we had been unable to find his family. The first finger was missing. Ladies, there is my story. I know nothing more. The women, deeply stirred, were pale and trembling. One of them exclaimed, But that is neither a climax nor an explanation. We will be unable to sleep unless you give us your opinion of what had occurred. The judge smiled severely. Oh, ladies, I shall certainly spoil your terrible dreams. I simply believe that the legitimate owner of the hand was not dead that he came to get it with his remaining one. But I don't know how. It was kind of a vendetta. One of the women murmured, No, it can't be that. And the judge, still smiling, said, Didn't I tell you that my explanation would not satisfy you? You've been listening to The Hand by Guy de Maupassant. Be sure to send your nightmares to robertcc at gmail.com. I've enjoyed being with you for this episode and hope to be with you again soon. Please take care. Thank you. <music>